Welcome back. Hit Factory here. My name is Aaron. My name is Carly. And today we are joined by film writer and critic Justine Perez-Smith. Justine, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited. We're very excited to host you, and especially for the, the film that we're going to be talking about today, which is Catherine Briot's 1999 film, Romance. I think calling this a maybe challenging watch is something of an understatement, but I think it's far from just like an empty provocation. It is uh, a, a really lovely film um, while also being very kind of upending and challenging of, I think, a lot of the ways that specifically mainstream cinema depicts intimacy, sexuality, femininity. Um, I found this one really fascinating. And Justine, I'm, I'm curious because this was one that I think was on a, a short list of films that you presented that you'd like to talk about. What is it about romance uh, that's so compelling to you? I mean, what isn't compelling about it? I think it's, such a, <laughs> it's like it's such an out there movie that is on one hand, it's actually like if you look at it like on the surface, like you get rid of like the explicit set scenes, it could seem like very um, like demure, cold even. Mm-hmm. But it, the more you watch it, like it's it's funny, it's provocative, it's strange. I think that this kind of like I, I want to say like high fantasy because I do think that that's e- existing in a kind of internal world rather than a real version of reality where this woman is in love with her fiance or her boyfriend, he won't make love to her. And it kind of is the worst thing for her. Like she doesn't know how to cope with it because that means for her shutting off this part of herself, this opportunity to grow as a sexual person that she can't explore within the relationship that she would like to. So she kind of goes on these adventures most of which seem fairly unpleasant, um, but I don't think I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. I don't think that it's she's I don't think that she's seeking, for example, like oh I want like the best sexual experience, or mm-hmm. I want the best orgasm ever. I think she just wants to have that avenue to explore who she is, and I, I find that very fascinating. What you say, Justine, about it being this sort of subjective space that we're in that like drew me in immediately. And then like the words in the film and the images on screen um, just like totally swept me away. This woman realizing that she has to shut part of herself off. That is not only fundamental to who she is, but also a part that she wants to explore um, and nurture and have nurtured. Um, like I felt that watching the film as well, but I also have experienced that in my life. Like the sort of compartmentalizing you have to do when, when you're with someone who cannot see you and experience you as like a sexual being. Um, and it's devastating. Um, it, it feels like, dying um and she talks about feelings of death throughout the film and the myriad sort of ways the sort of quotidian ways that we we sense dying um in life and that just spoke to me like it's very melodramatic and very franch um but like I was I was so I felt so connected to the messages of the film 
and to Marie's experience um, and to the words that she spoke in her head and to men. Um, I just, I just loved it. And on the surface, it, it sort of seems very simple, almost plain, um, suffocatingly so. Uh, and I think that's purposeful to a certain extent, but the more you examine the details of the frames, um, the more you see how rich and textured and, um, and like oftentimes painfully sad a lot of these images are. I don't know. It seems like one of those films that like I probably will and can and should watch many times and each time we'll get more out of it. Yeah, no, I mean, I agree. I think it's a movie that I've revisited a lot. It's the movie by Catherine Brie that I've seen the most times as well. I think it's my favorite of her films. And I think it's because it really leans heavily into the philosophy in a very classical way where it kind of brings it into all these different scenarios and these different interactions. And also this kind of knowledge that it's like heavily narrated where she's reading from her diary or sometimes it feels as though it's her thoughts. Mm -hmm. And even the dialogue is also very written. It's, it tends to be very like theatrical or uh, discursive, but they're also all unreliable. So I think that that even adds something where it's like, we're so, I think that's actually why the movie can be so uncomfortable. It's because we don't know where we stand as the viewer because mm -hmm. we don't know where she stands because I don't think she knows where she stands. Mm -hmm. And so there's these all these destabilizing things. And I agree, the framing is beautiful. And I think it, it's only something that you have to like actually watch the film to kind of take into account of how complex and so beautifully arranged the, the characters are within the frame. Yeah, you're right, too, about this destabilizing um, that takes place throughout the entire film. It's There is a sense in the whole film of, of searching, um, like... The, the feeling of looking for something, someone not knowing what it is. I was amazed at how the film was able to evoke that feeling um, in the experience of watching it. Um, and you're right. We can't help but feel the things that she's feeling. And I too found myself searching in a lot of ways uh, similar to how she was when she'd have an encounter with a man. I found myself thinking like, what's he going to offer her and uh, how's this going to go? And is she going to enjoy herself and what's going to be said? Like a lot of the same things that she was probably thinking in these encounters. And um, it's remarkable for a film, I think to do that, to insist an audience's participation experientially and emotionally in a film. It's, it's a very rare thing and when it's done and done so beautifully, it's incredibly affecting. We should start, I think, and, and talk a little bit about that character of Marie, played by uh, Carolyn Ducey, who in this film, I think, is totally fearless in her performance. Um, it is something really astonishing to watch. And as you were mentioning, Justine, I think one of the things that is so compelling about the character of Marie is the unreliability of that narration and that kind of interiority that we're, we're privy to. It vacillates. It kind of jumps all over the place. You know, she thinks she wants a certain thing. She tells us she wants a certain thing. She embraces a, a different kind of thing. And um, I, I think the kind of dichotomy between this perception that she has and this sort of splitting 
of herself that she's feeling between what we might consider like a, a romantic love and like the carnality of intimacy and of sex it takes us to such fascinating places i i find her really compelling yeah um her performance is incredible it is very cold in a way too where it's like she's not doing overt feelings in terms of like we sense very deeply what she's experiencing although there are definitely moments that are very um heated on her behalf but she seems very much like an observer and i think that that's very difficult to do let's also take into account that by the movie is does feature apparently unsimulated sex there's a lot of dispute even among the people who are on the film about whether that's true or not um and it was caroline uh caroline you see who did say that it's is simulated but then it's kind of a back and forth if you follow the bit of the behind the scenes drama because catherine bria says it is unsimulated but we edited the film to make Caroline happy because of a boyfriend. It's like a very bizarre mm-hmm. thing. Rocco Sofredi says that 100% it was real sex and he would know. Um, <laughs> and it's it's a very complex, I think, behind the scenes in general. I, From what I understand, I don't think that she had a particularly good time making this movie, um, which is not that unusual for people who work with Catherine Priest. She can be very difficult mm-hmm. and very demanding of her performers. But I mean, it's very, she didn't, I think she did an incredible job. It's, and it's a very thankless type of performance that could have gone very wrong as well. Yeah, I was reading an interview with Briat that came out around the time of the film's release. And she was talking a little bit about uh, Ducey's complications on the set. Um, as you alluded to, I think some of that had to do with the fact that she kind of began the production uh, under the pretense that she was going to be kind of ending uh, an intimate relationship that she was in um, and then found herself kind of clinging to that relationship more the, the further the production went on and and found some of the stuff that she was uh, being asked to perform within the movie troubling or, or problematic. Um, but Briat also points out and, and kind of mentions that there was this sort of self-censorship on Ducey's part that she had to kind of help her work through, that there is, uh, I think, something more how to put it, I guess, like sociological about the impulses of denying uh, women specifically denying like a certain level of embrace of intimacy or sexual expression that Briat was really insistent on challenging and that felt like she had to kind of coax out of Doucet during the performance. Um, and, and I find that really compelling. Just uh, w- these conversations come up, I think, a great deal when we're talking about films and, and especially films that deal with women and sexuality um but about this idea of self-censorship this idea that like there is no avenue through which women can express themselves fully in this particular regard yeah for sure and i think too it's like for bria this is like a career long exploration like even i think her first novel which became her first film was released when she was 16 years old Mm -hmm. and it was also about a young girl who was 16 or 15 exploring her sexuality and doing things you're not supposed to do like inserting weird objects and kind of pushing these boundaries and it's like I think part of what's interesting about this movie and I think all of her films is that we're talking about the search and searching for something and there's this kind of idea that maybe there isn't a destination 
that there's not like, oh, she's not going to have this. She's not going to find what she's looking for because there is nothing to find. That it is just a process. And it's a process that's never ending. And I mean, the fact she has a movie at Cannes this year, which obviously I didn't see, which none of us have. Um, but if you look back at her previous film, um, Abusive Weakness, which was also also like autofictional, autobiographical about her stroke and about having um, a relationship with a much younger man who was a hustler and stealing her money and her family being like, this man is stealing her money. And then she casts him as himself in the movie. I think she's like very self-referential, very self-aware of kind of what she's doing and also understanding that it is a lifetime process. It's like a lot of filmmakers are so interested in like one period of what it means to be like a sexual person. And it's clear that Briette throughout her career, she's like, oh, it's like up until I don't, I'm not sure how old she is now, but it's probably in her seventies. And she's still kind of exploring those same ideas, but from a different point of view, because we all evolve and we all change. I think the thing that is um, fundamental to what you're talking about, Justine, is that sexuality is a part of being human. Um, And it's, you know, so it's necessarily going to be something that exists on a continuum throughout your entire time on this planet. Um, and, And I think what I've run up against... Um, in recent years is a belief that like sexuality and particularly a woman's is, um, is not inherent to her existence as a human being. Um, that it's this thing that exists sort of separate and apart from her, um, and how she sees herself and how she expresses herself. It's a, Um, it's, you know, this little, like, um, this little sort of like charm on a bracelet of like things she could be and say and do. Um, and that's like, I think a a direct result of living under a patriarchal society, um, not sort of, um, believing or understanding that sexuality is a part of being alive, um, it's necessary to make life in fact. Um, and also I think part of, you know, living under patriarchal capitalism where pleasure is, uh, seen as, um, not just like, it's not just looked down upon. It is actually seen as destructive to the system pleasure for pleasure's sake. Um, and not, not certainly not seen as fundamental to being a whole person. Um, the fact that I can and uh, and do experience pleasure um, without it being tied to a transaction uh, that involves capital um, or produces capital is fundamental to my sanity as a human being. Um, and I loved that this movie explores what that means. And it means something different for everyone. And sometimes there's crossover. Um, but that it is a noble act to seek pleasure. It is not a degradation, um, as society would have us believe. And that, um, you know, without sort of getting too into like, 
really flat allegories here. I think it's really easy to say that Paul represents a sort of oppressive patriarchal, mm-hmm. you know, structure of power in society. Um, and he does. But I also think he represents a certain kind of retrograde feminism <laughs> that um, that believes that that sexuality, the acts of sex, the pursuance of sex and pleasure um, are, are things that are disgusting. And I think that like Briat's exploration throughout her career of like what her own sexuality is as she evolves and ages and her relationship to society and to men changes um, is a, is a really important part of just like every person's existence. I feel like, we should all do that. I not, you know, certainly not everyone should be making films about it, but, um, but that sort of curiosity, I think is fundamental is as fundamental to sexuality as, um, as intimacy and sex and eroticism are. We should talk a little bit about the Paul character (laughs) and maybe not try to pathologize him too much, but I think that you're 100% on the money, Carly, about, his sort of representation of a kind of like patriarchal capitalist perspective. Um, But you are right that there is this interesting kind of like reversal of more typical, I think like, especially in film kind of like narrative gender roles, the way that he is sort of, uh, you know, uh, predisposed towards, you know, wanting to express himself in ways that aren't specifically carnal or sexual and, you know, kind of, having to like swat away the the horned up lady and everything like that. Um, they make his character interesting in like the textures that they give him too, though, that he still has this desire to seduce that they mention and show explicitly, like when he's out on the dance floor, right? That he's, he's not removed of all of this idea of what that kind of seduction and what that sort of foreplay and sexual kind of component of, of intimacy is, it's just like the actual physical act that for whatever reason he finds detestable or, or disinterested in. Um, and so I, I don't know, I'll, I'll send it to you all for your perspectives on it, but he's, he's compelling and I, I like the sort of ripples in what could be like a very, uh, sort of easy and sort of like simplistic representation of what that perspective could be. Yeah. I mean, I think that you're both right that he could almost be read in two ways that he does represent like a lot of archaic ideas, but there is this almost, I think there's the, this like the, the mother horror complex can be read Mm -hmm. as feminist as well. Not feminist in the sense it's from a, I can understand from a male's perspective, he's like, but I, because I respect you, I can't have sex with you. It's a very, like, it's a, it's an internalized type of, of problem. And it's trying to see the woman as a fem as a human being and not being able to do that if he has sex with her. Um, and a lot of what you were saying too, Carly, like as someone who spends like an insane amount of time on Twitter, you, especially with now that we have the for you tab and I see like a lot of stuff I don't want to see yeah um because you end up seeing like a lot of these guys who are like gurus in many ways you get the seductors the seduction mm-hmm. type crew like the game and for them 
actually because my neighbor is one too um but uh <laughs> i don't think they're actually interested in the sex part they're interested in the conquest and they don't seem particularly interested mm-hmm. in the other part and you're even seeing people like i i you see a little th- a lot of things with like andrew tate and he d- he said like i don't really like having sex with women after the first like 30 seconds and you're like this like it's a very strange situation and it, it does feel as though they're they understand to a certain extent that it's not useful to have sex uh, unless you're procreating. And I think we're talking to like a lot of the other things I see in Twitter is like, don't even have sex and don't engage with women until you're 35 and a billionaire or millionaire because they're distractions and it's bad. And you have like all these kind of mixed messaging, but it all kind of comes down to the same thing that you're saying, Carly, about like sex for sex sake is completely outside of, the capital mode and if you're not procreating Mm -hmm. you're also out of the capital mode so why is it useful it's only useful for like a spiritual type of well-being which people don't want to talk about either because they don't want to kind of associate it with like oh it makes people feel good or oh it's it actually is a way to connect with other people and intimacy is important or intimacy with yourself all of these things are actually very threatening Mm -hmm. and i think that even marie as a character and also Paul I think I think he's also dealing with that in a very different way in a very maybe more passive because he's not actually going out and exploring things to the same extent that she is but he's clearly suffering from a lot of those same ideas because she's she's struggling like a a lot of what she's saying she's like I have to do it this way and it's I have a hard time opening up and she's trying to do to explore but it's it's very difficult and the biggest difficulty is the relationship she has with herself. Yeah, what you're saying about accepting the idea that sex can be spiritually fulfilling, can be this sort of completion of one's whole being, that that is threatening. Um, We see that explicitly uh, play out in the film. And I'm thinking of one scene in particular when Marie is with Robert, who is an administrator at the school she teaches at, the principal, I'm not really sure. The headmaster or something, I think, is what he's described as. Um, The first scene between the two of them, which we should talk about in a moment, is uh, remarkable. I was just totally holding my breath the entire time. Um, But I'll I'll just say quickly, there's a scene in which he is tying her up um, and he's asked, you know, for her consent and... And he's going about it and, you know, um, tying rope around her and all these like intricate ways. And um, and he realizes she's unhappy. And so he takes this gag out of her mouth and unties her and he carries her over to the bed and she collapses into tears. And, um, you know, initially you think, oh, God, like he's hurt her. Like she doesn't want to do this. And that's not actually what happens. She says, I'm fine. I've actually always wanted to do this. But I think what she's crying about, Justine, is exactly what you're saying, you're talking about, which is she's coming to terms with how threatening it is to like tap into this part of herself that she's wanted to explore. And like she doesn't know how to reconcile those feelings. She doesn't know how to sort of like push through how scary it is to like confront yourself um, in that way. And I thought that that scene was beautiful and complicated and 
um, and speaks exactly to what you're talking about on a sort of broader societal stage, which is like people are threatened by the idea of exploring yourself sexually with another human or even just on your own. Um, they're threatened by that. And, and uh, I like that this film exposes that kind of vulnerability, but also doesn't allow us to languish in it. Like it wants us to push past that um, the same way that like we might ourselves want to. Yeah, I think Robert, too, is a very interesting character because he actually is a lot like her in that he's narrating, especially the the first long meeting that they have. Mm-hmm. He spends a lot of time explaining who he is, and he he tries to do it in a way that makes him seem repulsive. And I think it's it's I almost think it feels like a, a bit of a self-defense mechanism where he recognizes that he's not a, a feminine, an, an ideal for like a woman. And so he kind of leans into it, which apparently works very well in his favor. But he's actually quite a gentle and like very attentive man. And over the course of the film, like, I don't know how far we want to go. But like, in the last time we see him, what he's doing is is like you would never imagine that from the first thing that you see Mm -hmm. him in. And yet it is actually totally makes sense with his whole character and who he is and what he does, which I find it's, it's a very refreshing and very interesting direction to take that, that, that character. I just like, I, it's so unexpected and yet it completely, completely makes sense. Yeah. I really like his character. And you, you were talking earlier, Justine, about how often funny the movie can be. And it was something that I don't think I was expecting from this film uh, when I you know, first put it on, just knowing kind of the, the context and the subject matter of it. But uh, his character, Robert, uh, Francois Bellion, I think is his name, that opening sort of monologue in which he's kind of giving his resume and talking about, you know, oh, I've seduced, seduced over 10,000 women. And I know I'm, you know, not... I'm not particularly attractive. I'm actually kind of hideous, but like women kind of like hideous guys. It's this weird, this thing that he's doing, he's like playing interview tapes and things from uh, people who have like explored his psyche before. Uh, It's very, I don't know. It's really comical kind of like it it, it is funny and loose and you know, like it, it is this very kind of fun sort of showboaty moment for him where he's, you know, kind of walking this tightrope, like you mentioned between, admitting some of his flaws but that being kind of the front of the operation to almost sort of put her more at ease to allow for this more kind of consensual uh, environment in which she can kind of submit and there can be this sort of you know dominating and and bondage sort of situation uh, he's fascinating it and, and the, the film i think rightly so spends the longest period of time with him when we're engaging in her pursuits outside of the relationship with Paul. I also think though what he says is just very true. I do think that he's right that there is something about repulsive men that especially beautiful women can be very attracted to. And yeah. I think I mean that's that's the beauty of doing a movie like this as well where you are kind of operating where in a normal conversation people don't tend to say those types of things, but this kind of high reality, you could have this permissiveness to be that frank and it kind of slide very well um but there's even like because i having seen the movie a a few times now 
there's a lot of moments like particularly like as we're leading up to like sex and things where there's a lot of strange jump cuts and a lot of strange edits Mm -hmm. that to me end up kind of questioning the reality of even those sequences in terms of like how much of this is actually just happening in her head and I don't usually like to indulge those types of things but I think it's like that was all in her head the whole time I think it's very stupid but I also think it's like (laughs) um I think it's speaking to her like oh like we're actually kind of like what what happens like in any kind of sexual encounter is not just about the act itself it is about this internal thing Mm -hmm. that is difficult to pin down so in kind of breaking down like a cinematic reality that way I think brings us into that um, a movie like uh, Benoel's Belle de Jour also does a lot of things like that. Strange mm-hmm. jump cuts, strange sounds in the background that are signaling like breaks in reality, the divide between dream and reality as well. And all I think that contributes to is kind of understanding that we live an internal life and then we live an external life and they do intersect. But oftentimes it's almost as if two different things are happening at once, which is like very can be very challenging as a as a character for Marie, I think, in particular, because she does feel sometimes this detachment from her body. But I do think just contributes to how like rich the film is as a text, like that it does really invite revisiting and going back to. Yeah, she says at one point, um, I believe it's after her first encounter with Robert when she's getting home. Um, and this is before she goes back out and has uh, uh, an experience with a man in the stairwell. Um, she gets home to Paul's apartment after her encounter with Robert. And she is talking about how she's in her head. And she says, um, it's all I can be in my head. My body doesn't belong to me. Um, and, uh, shortly thereafter we see her masturbating and she's talking about how when she masturbates, she keeps her legs closed Mm. so that she ostensibly has to rape herself, um, that it has to be something that's taken. Um, and that coupled with, you know, her sort of like inner monologue and talking about how like she's in her head and it's really all she can be and that her body isn't really hers does sort of, it does sort of like set you adrift in this, in this space where the subjective and objective realities are, um, are blurred and knowing which one you're in actually doesn't really matter um, because it's more about sort of the feeling of, of the experience and uh, and the feeling that the film evokes so that you can sort of feel what, what she's feeling. Um, I love the tenderness between her and Robert um, and how um, to anyone who's not familiar with the BDSM sort of like space and community, they would think that that's like, uh, counterintuitive, I suppose, but um, any anything you read or hear about or experience yourself um, within the space of, of BDSM, you'll you'll quickly understand is very much about consent and communication and tenderness um, and um, and very much about like how those things are fundamental to intimacy. Um, they are uh, 
fundamental to pleasure um, in many in many cases. Um, and I love that this film isn't afraid to show that um, that Robert uh, really is sort of you know playing by the rules and um, and asking for uh, consent every step of the way, checking in with her. That in and of itself, even outside of the context of a sexual exchange, is an incredibly intimate thing um, and speaks to what he says in the beginning of their conversation at his apartment, which is that nobody bothers to talk to women anymore. (laughs) And he says, you know, they talk and I listen and they're putty in my hands. And what he's getting at is that it is an intimate thing to have that exchange, to speak and have someone listen to you and receive you and see you and hear you and respond to you in a way that lets you know that they are doing those things. Um, It's incredibly connecting in the same way that I think sexual acts can be at times. And I really loved that this film coupled those things together in the character of Robert. Yeah, and I like the they. She doesn't make the the script is really like, it's just like a very beautiful script. I think in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. and I love that like she subverts the way that we understand a lot of that language now. But is he is very overt. He says, "Can I dominate you now?" And he keeps asking her questions that are not scripted necessarily, but are always checking in and are always attentive and are also quite explicit about what he is going to do or not do. And there's an implicit understanding that if she says no, which she does say sometimes, oh, I don't like this or this I find uncomfortable, that he doesn't do it. And that level of attentiveness is and he I would also say he does go above and beyond, for example, like when she does have the ball gag and he's Mm -hmm. responding to her body and he's like, oh, she's not enjoying this. So even though she can't verbally express that, he's like attentive enough that he's like, "Okay, I'm going to. I'm going to stop and I'm going to check in and see what's what's going on right now. And he also says at one point, like, we could just make normal love. It, like, I find that like a very like, he's like, we could just like have normal sex and that's okay. And I, I thought that was like a very, it's like strangely sweet. It's, it's a very like, he's like trying to understand what she's trying to get out of the relationship as well. He's very sweet. He's mm-hmm. very, very sweet, which is why when you see him at the end of the film in the position that he's in, like, I didn't question it. I was like, of course, of course he would. Um, And uh, we should talk about that in relation to, you know, everything else. But I, I just, I really adored his character. And I think it's, it's such a coup because he does do a lot on paper that reads as like, so off-putting and detestable you know he's sort of talking about I've slept with thousands of women I keep diaries you read it on paper and you're like oh fuck this is gross just like some old dude like you know having sex all the time and telling me about it even the way he describes the interior decor he's like I change it with the trends I'm like this is so terrible (laughs) (laughs) I like I it's like I'm cringing inside but I'm like yes but he like manages to be charming like it's and again it speaks to what it speaks to the words that are coming out of his mouth it's like it might be cringe but what it is acknowledging is that he is interested in what women want right like period um and paul is not paul is not interested in what women want he's not Mm. even interested in what 
you know, the woman he claims to love wants. Um, and so even though he's saying like, women want to see what they see on TV. So I have these shoji screens here because they want to see them. <laughs> Look, even though he's saying that, like he's, he's still admitting that he's invested in bringing women pleasure. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, which I'm not going to fault him for that. <laughs> no, I, he also too, like, I mean, the, the way that the film, I think contrast his character with the two other men that she engages in sex with, I think is important where when she's with Rocco Sofredi's character, who of course is named Paolo, not unlike Paul, her, her lover uh, and partner uh, it's, somewhat of like a a negotiation but she clearly has the upper hand in a lot of it like it's one that she's expressing a lot more of the control and sort of denying him some of his explicit desires that he he speaks to like when he asks her to you know blow him in the car and she's like i'm not going to do that i don't want to do that right now maybe later and even when they are engaging in sex you know when they've gone to this hotel room a lot of it is about her uh maintaining sort of the the control within that scenario and then of course on the other end of that the man that she meets in the alleyway who she then has sex with in the staircase uh does not ask for consent right it is it's kind of the the polar opposite of the sort of relationship that she's having with robert at that point which is that you know they agree to a particular to a particular terms there's consent on on both parts in that regard and then he uh forcefully takes her and you know it's it's kind of opposite ends of these spectrums here. You know, there's the power dynamics that are constantly sort of shifting. And I do think it it's, like you said, kind of a coup, kind of fascinating that Robert ends up being the one that winds up being kind of the most intimate connection. We see it flowering even beyond the bedroom, right? Where they start going out afterward and going to dinner and eating a lot. And you see the ways in which it becomes fulfilling uh, from a lot of kind of bodily positions, not just, you know, orgasm or, or for sex. I think one thing I found interesting about the encounter in the stairwell, um, which happens after her first uh, sexual experience with Robert, she comes home um, to Paul's apartment. He's gone. <laughs> she says it wrecks her. Um, she walks across the street Uh, to the Japanese restaurant that they eat at um, frequently and sees him. And she says something to the effect of, he wasn't cheating on me. It was worse. He was thrilled to be alone. (laughs) That scene is also really funny. Like he's reading Bukowski and eating sushi. (laughs) In glasses, just like with a shit eating grin on his face. And she resolves to come home last. At, at that point, she says, I can have the upper hand. I'll come home last. Um, and that'll be my, that'll be my power move. So she goes out, goes back out, um, passes a man in a stairwell who says $20 to eat you. She consents. Um, and he does. And then, uh, in the middle of that, he um, turns her over and ostensibly rapes her. But even this is like, I, I'm hesitant to wade into territory of like dissecting what rape is because I think that's not a productive conversation. But I think it's important that this film 
muddles the lines of consent frequently, um, especially when it comes to the character of Marie wanting to explore things about herself. So where does the line of agreement stop if she's in pursuit of learning something about herself and to a certain extent finding that act in and of itself pleasurable? Um, But this man, for all intents and purposes, rapes her. He calls her a whore a bitch. He starts to degrade her. The most fascinating part of that scene is when he leaves, she yells, I'm not ashamed, asshole. Uh, And that's her attempting to take back her power. Like, Mm -hmm. you think you did this thing to me? You think you degraded me and, like, um, and used me? But I used you, actually. Uh, Whether or not that's true is kind of irrelevant. Um, But the fact that that line is said, I think, is important to us understanding her mindset. Again, this searching of... um, trying to better understand what she wants and what brings her pleasure and who she is and um, and these encounters revealing things about herself um, and whether she can admit them or not, I think is important too. Um, I sort of found myself like thinking about some of the words that she was narrating um, during this exchange and she was talking about like, to be discredited, to be uh, degraded um, by degrading yourself for someone you find uh, to be pitiable, um, to wallow with them as they wallow, uh, that that is is pleasure for a girl. Um, And I think what's important is not whether or not that's true for everyone, but that like she is, with each of these encounters, like blooming into realizations about herself and realizations that are fundamental to herself, uh, to her being a woman and sort of these fundamental truths about women, like, you know, broadly speaking. Um, And I really like thinking about her as kind of like an unreliable arbiter of that, almost in a mythic quality, sort of like, um Odysseus to a certain extent like there's something Homeric about her um sort of traveling through all of these uh exchanges and along the way learning things about herself and about life and about um and about what it means to be a woman I think there's kind of this like undercurrent too where she's actually being degraded most by paul this man who mm-hmm. has ostensibly promised himself to her and they're going to have this life together and he's like i don't want this part of yourself to exist like i wish this did not this you didn't have these desires and i wish you didn't try to put them on me and there's something wrong with you like he keeps saying and it's all like with a very he's never he doesn't raise his voice he doesn't do anything but he's always like passively disinterested in who she is. And I mean, there's like a, kind of like more of the funnier things, like because he's a male model and he's very decorative, like as a human being, um, like that whole opening sequence where we see him doing his work. It's like, it's all about appearances in a way. Mm-hmm. 
And so she fits into his world in terms of appearances, but does not fit into his world as a human being. And I find that very, it's it's very audacious because making that equation as a filmmaker, you're like, well, the person who's really humiliating her is her quiet, uh, wealthy, beautiful boyfriend. But he just doesn't care about her. Like, And that's like very, very clear. Yeah, he's the character out of any of them. And I'll tread lightly here because I, I, I know that one of these characters rapes Marie in the movie. But like he's the one I think out of all of these characters and all these men that she has experience with who is the most disinterested in any level of her own expression and her desire, anything like that. There's no compromise on his part with any sort of part of what she wants in this relationship. It, the entire relationship has to kind of cede to his desire, which is a lack of it, a complete lack of intimacy and and touch and all of those things. Their entire existence is white, white and <laughs> <Literally> beige. White. <laughs> Everything in their apartment is white. Their clothes are white. Even the um, cat. The cat is white. Um, it's oppressive and sterile and um, clinical. Uh, and she says at one point, early in the film that an invisible cage descends upon her. Um, The writing in this movie is just beautiful, Justine. I mean, I was like writing lines down verbatim feverishly um, because they're all gorgeous. Um, But the cage, you know, is, is this sort of like disinterest that he has in this part of her, this, um, this splitting of her that he wants to take place. But it's also uh, represented in the spaces that she inhabits with him, the clothes that she wears. Um, and notably, uh, Robert's apartment is completely the opposite. It's dark. It's rich. It has, like, things from all over the world. It's very, like, um, he's got shoji screens and African masks and these sort of, like, medieval chairs. And it's ornate and and dark and... We even see her dress change over the course of the film. Uh, the more time she spends with Robert, she's in this sort of shoulderless red taffeta gown, mm-hmm. um, almost like an Audrey Hepburn, uh, like Roman holiday type dress. Um, at one point after being with Robert. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's easy allegory, right, to see that, like, this space with Robert is one full of life and texture and color and sometimes danger, but that being also fundamental to um, her experience as a, as a person and her expressing herself. Uh, and then this space um, with Paul very much looking like an operating room um, or a doctor's office. Um, which comes into play later in the film. Uh, And we can talk about that. The only other thing I want to say about Paul is um, I think it's, it's so important that he is so beautiful. Um, He's gorgeous. I mean, this, the movie opens on his face for a reason. Um, And he opens his eyes and you are just like taken aback by how gorgeous this man that you're looking at is. And uh, you know, within a handful of minutes, I detest him. Um, and I think, like, 
it's such an inherently female perspective um, that this film is operating on, obviously. But it's an, an, it's an inherently, I think, sort of feminized experience um, as an audience member to see this beautiful man, to want him uh, the way that Marie does, and to hate him the way that Marie does. Uh, and again, it's inserting us into, you know, this sort of participation with her, um, which I just, I really adore. Yeah, there's a really revealing moment with Paul near the end of the film, too, where they go out with his sister and brother-in-law to that same kind of like club that they always go to. And of course, he's doing his normal kind of seductive thing where he goes out on the dance floor and then comes back and kind of taunts Marie and is like, there's a woman out there who wanted me so badly that I almost kissed her and I didn't. I pulled away at the last moment. Uh, but But even more, I think revealing of kind of his perspective is the moment right after where he kind of yells at his sister and sort of accuses the two of them of like falling out of love or putting on these airs or something that they like are no longer intimate with one another or care about one another because they look so kind of dour. Uh, And it's that moment. I think that if you haven't already, you know, been solidified in your perspective, you realize that all of this is purely about this, you know, kind of, exterior like externalized appearance of normalcy question mark i guess but um that that it is all just this kind of facade that breaks and shatters the minute that you interrogate it we should talk a little bit about uh the last act of this film um we've we've mentioned it a couple times already and, and sort of alluded to what happens here uh marie gets pregnant after uh, an evening with paul which is what looks like the least satisfying sex anybody has ever had in their life. <laughs> um, well, she even it, says she's like, neither of us came. Yeah. It's like right. immaculate conception. Right. It was just a drop of seminal fluid, she says, that ends up conceiving this child, um, which uh, is just, yeah, there's a, a kind of potent irony to it. Um, but this is where we get into a film that has already been kind of abstracted and, and you know, very much told from the subjective perspective um we get this really fascinating dream sequence um that i i think you know uh, bears a lot of the interiority of marie explicitly in the film in which she is literally split in half between two rooms uh her lower portion in like a, a red skirt and a bunch of naked you know aroused men having sex with her and and other women in there and then the top portion of her in a very sort of clinical white space almost like an operating room what looks like you know maybe even like a morgue almost um and paul is there sitting next to her kind of like holding her hand um and it's it's a very vivid scene uh with an incredible match cut that ends the end of it um but we'll talk a little bit about the dream sequence first she calls it a fantasy though Mm -hmm. um so it's not a nightmare that she's having she says she fantasizes about a brothel where um, the women are, uh, the faces are obscured um, and it's just their lower bodies. It's preceded by a scene where she is looking at herself in a hand mirror, a thing that every single woman who's ever been alive while mirrors have existed has done. Um, And uh, she says uh, a man can't love uh, a face 
um, that because the face doesn't go with a cunt. Um, and she's panning down to her herself, her vagina, uh, and then looking up at her face and, and basically talking about um, the necessity for men to split women in this way. And then she says, I have this fantasy of this brothel and we go into this sort of dream sequence. Um, and I think what that speaks to is an acknowledgement on her part that, that there is something fundamentally tied to something fundamental about her sexuality that is inherently tied to men and what they desire. Um, or, or what they are incapable of doing. Um, and I think that's interesting because I think that's a sort of internalized patriarchal experience and one that I'm familiar with, but also one that I think can be weaponized against women and like argued that like we don't have ownership um, over. Like I often get into these conversations with a few friends of mine who are on the same frequency and will go here with me, um, that, like, there is something powerful as a female about claiming things that you think men want (laughs) and, like, utilizing that for yourself um, and for your own pleasure and your own self-expression. Um, and I talk about this with my friend Veronica a lot, um, with regards to sort of like hyper femme, like Adriana LaServa, for lack of a better, um, <laughs> for lack of a better term, Adriana LaServa core of like mini skirts and like makeup and gloss and like leopard print and nails and high heels and, uh, glitter that like men, view women who dress that way as seeking attention but what is left out of the conversation is like what if I am actually wanting to seek attention like what if this is a decision I'm making and it is a part of me expressing myself and experiencing a portion of my sexuality and I think we can sort of read this fantasy this dream sequence of you know the split woman as a kind of version of that. She's saying like, this is what men want. They can't reconcile the vagina with the head very, you know, overtly. But like, she's also saying like, but like, I also want this Mm -hmm. in my own way. Um, And I think that's powerful. Yeah. I find it really interesting too, because it does harken back to something that Robert says, because he, he um, like when he's describing his like thousands of, conquests he does say he's like every woman has a different face but all of them also have a different vagina Mm. and i find that like actually and he says it in a way where he's almost more enlightened than she is because he doesn't he doesn't seem to see that as a problem like he sees her as he sees those things as connected Mm. where she's the one and like almost all the other men in the film they have a very hard time reconciling that those are part of the same body yes and i understand very well her desire to have those separations because it would make life easier in a lot of ways, right? Where you could have this perfect domestic life that 
is like you see in like TV and movies, like there's you're sleeping in separate beds and everything's great. But then you could have this other life as well that has no impact on that. And unfortunately, or fortunately, I mean, like that's it's a matter of perspective. That isn't the case. <laughs> they we are connected and that's just a part of living in a human body. And I think for Marie, it makes sense why she would want to be separated. But she just it's it's just it's just not gonna happen. Yeah, and you're right about Robert, um and his sort of level of enlightenment and why he maybe really is the only person who can be there for her when she has this child um, because he can see her as this whole person uh, and as a mother, um, not just a person that he fucks. Um, and I think you're right that he is, he is the sort of, I don't want to say he's like the perfect man, but he kind of is right. Like he's, he's operating on this level of, accepting her wholly inviting things out of her which is like an incredibly erotic experience um when you are are you know engaging with someone who who brings things out of you that you might be afraid of or that you want to explore but don't know how to like that's incredibly intimate incredibly erotic incredibly connective um and he does that for her and it's why I think she feels safest with him and why I felt safest with him at the end of the film um, when she's having this child. Yeah. Uh, I, I mentioned already that that fantasy scene ends with like an incredible match cut from uh, a penis ejaculating to like gel being squirted onto her pregnant belly in the exam room. Shocking. And also just like a moment of like applause, like brilliant, inspired, wonderful. Uh, there's also a, a really interesting scene here too, when she's going in for one of her like gynecological exams after she's found out that she's pregnant, uh, where she is in the bed, you know, legs kind of opened and spread sort of in the stirrups to be examined. And the doctor is kind of, uh, penetrating her with his fingers to, to check on the baby. And there's a room full of other men, other sort of like interns or, or resident doctors, you know, who are in training. Uh, and they all, in kind of like a, a very sterile assembly line fashion, go through and also put on the exam glove and do the same thing and digitally penetrate her. Um, and we see the entire thing play out uh, one after the other. We've already mentioned that there's kind of this this clinical quality to some of the other sex in here. And this obviously is not a a sexual scene, but there is a you know, a, a penetrative quality to how they're touching her and things that look similar to other moments in the film. And I, I'm trying to figure out what to make of it in terms of this. Is it a sort of with, with the baby present, this kind of recoupling of these ideas of intimacy and sexuality and touch? Or is it a further kind of like division between the two? I mean, what maybe it's because I just finished or the Dead Ringer show, so it's kind of like on my mind. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I do think that it's kind of like with a lot of different ideas, but I think she's touching on how the medical profession and birth in particular, it, there is this sense of, of like, if you go, like, not, I'm not like, I, I'm talking like very broadly, like, not in specifics, but like a lot of, 
gynecological examinations or anything to do with like female anatomy like if not like if you have a uterus if you have all these things going into the medical milieu one on one level is incredibly humiliating on a lot of levels because you have to justify so much mm-hmm. um even now there's in where I'm from in Montreal and Quebec there's a campaign that a bunch of women are trying to do to talk about how they were going in for like routine procedures and they were not advised in terms of pain levels or changes in what the procedures would be as they go along and how violating that is and how they need to restructure the way that you are dealing with things like even the insertion of IUD, which I've personally never had done, but everyone, like I know so many people who have and they're like, it is the most painful thing I've experienced. And a lot of doctors don't tell you that or they say, one of the people, one person I know, and this was just a few years ago, they're like, the doctor's like, oh, but you don't have any pain. Uh, you don't have any nerve endings there. So it's, it doesn't hurt. And you're like, but it does. <laughs> like, but it does. So like, I think on one level, there's that aspect of like the humiliation of being a woman in a clinical environment. And I also think that there is also this sense of the general dehumanization and clinicalization of care work. Mm. And we're kind of talking about like, sexuality as being something that extends beyond just sex um I think Erin you were kind of talking about that kind of reconnecting in a little bit and I think that she's kind of trying to do that as well where it's like if you're gonna have a baby it's a whether you want that baby or not it's a very physical it's a very spiritual it's a very animalistic type of thing but we kind of dress it up as this incredibly clinical cold detached type of thing and why do we do that? Um, I think to a certain extent, we there is an argument, oh, like it's just safety. But I think it, it goes beyond that. I think mm-hmm. we don't want to kind of connect with that primal part of things. And I think if you look at kind of the history of like giving birth in the world, how so much of it has changed and it's not always changed for the better. We think that it must be at its most advanced right now. But that's not necessarily the case in a lot of ways of, um, I think just like in terms of the way we deal with each other like as human beings Mm. where it can be very dehumanizing and I think that that's kind of the experience because it's also not clear necessarily that she wants a baby Mm -hmm. um and I think it's like it's very complex because the 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 film doesn't really spell that out but it doesn't spell it doesn't give her age like she doesn't seem to have agency over her body in general and I think Mm. that's one of her struggles so for her it's like oh I'm just gonna have the baby but it is also transformative Mm-hmm. And I, it's so it's like it's very there's all these layers and all these contradictions, which I find so fascinating. Yeah, it's not easy. It can't be distilled down into like a tweet or a meme, um, <laughs> which is why movies like this are so necessary <laughs> um, because it's messy the way life is and the way that um, feelings and um, and physical experiences are as well. Um, I'm so glad you brought up the sort of like clinicizing of birthing um, because I think it's really, really important to this film and also just a broader understanding of like this film's commentary on capitalism and just like postmodernity and and um, things that um, we see as advancements also inherently being dehumanizing to your point. Um, I have, you know, a couple of friends who have, especially because we live in the Bay area, there's like, this is more common, but they've 
they've opted for doulas um, as part of their birthing experience. And everything I've heard about having a doula is completely, completely different from the experience of strictly going through the Western medical profession. Um, And necessary. Everything I've heard about having a doula seems incredibly necessary to the birthing process. And but it's an old thing. It's it's been around for thousands of years, um, and it is very much what you're talking about, Justine. It's uh, it's an acknowledgement of the sort of primal, animalistic, the connective, um, sensorial aspects of having a child um, beyond the the sort of clinical. And I think that um, Marie having the baby is is important because it can be seen as sort of another step in this pursuit of hers to learn about herself. And, you know, she doesn't, it's not clear to your point about whether or not she wants the baby, but that's sort of the case with a lot of what happens in the film. Um, And yet all of these encounters that she has, are important and fundamental to her learning about herself and becoming who she, uh, this sort of full expression of who she is. And I think the, the pregnancy can be seen in that way. And the, the having the child can be seen in that way too. Um, The thing she says when she's on the uh, table, when she's first having the exam at eight weeks, when all these sort of interns, pimply interns, she calls them, <laughs> are fingering her, um, is that she's a slab of meat. And it's impossible not to see the relationship between that feeling uh, of her on that table and the sex she just had with Paul. <laughs> she is ostensibly a slab of meat, um, a whole. And, uh, and I think that it might be easy to think like, oh, well, for the, the, the man that rapes her or for Robert or Paolo, um, that's when she's meet. Um, but to our main argument, it really is, it really is Paul who degrades her the most. Um, and I, I really loved the way that the, the sort of medical stuff was depicted and that the further we go into her experience with Western medicine and having this baby, the, the more detached from reality we, we actually get, um, which I think is also important because it is a very surreal experience being a woman and going to the doctor and like having a, copper hanger inserted into your cervix. Um, and it is one of the most painful things I've ever been, I've ever experienced in my entire life. And I was not at all prepared for it. Yeah. And I mean, unfortunately that's so common and like, mm-hmm. and it, it should be considered malpractice. Like this is the thing too, like when we're talking about the clinic, clinical point of view on the, on the, in terms of the IOD, for example, them saying, oh, but there's no nerve endings. Yeah. But you're having hundreds, if not thousands, if not tens of thousands of women saying it is painful. And so you have to go back to the drawing board and say, okay, well maybe there's something, there's something to what they're <laughs> saying. Um, 
and I think that that is I, I think that that is like so much of like this quest that Marie has uh, over the course of the film. She wants to be heard and she wants to be seen. And even going back to her encounter with Paolo and uh, Rocco Sofredi, and which seems which she seems to find so exciting, and she she talks about as like this first encounter with strangers and um, kind of touching each other for the first time, seeing each other for the first time. And I think that for her, and I think for a lot of people, not just women, there's this kind of thrill from that encounter where someone is is really seeing you because they they don't know you and they're trying to figure you out and you're seeing them and sometimes like as the case with Paul we can assume that at one point they had that first excitement um that you stop being seen and you kind of get fixed and you're no longer allowed to evolve or you're no longer allowed to reveal parts of yourself that were not initially put on the table but who among us can do that you know it's like an un unrealistic if not impossible thing to ask of somebody to give yourself give all parts of yourself and or to stop evolving and to mm. just fit into the image that they have of you um, and I think that she's struggling with that and I think maybe that is the whole thing with the motherhood right mm-hmm. it forces and allows her to be like oh I am 100% no longer the same person that I was mm-hmm. and that is liberating it, it is liberating for her because she can't be treated the same way that she was before. You know, this conversation we're having about sort of like the clinicizing of motherhood and, and specifically the pregnancy and, and childbirth itself is important um, when we're considering Paul as the father and also the fact that early on in the film, he expresses that really his only interest in sex and intercourse is for the purposes of procreation, you know, this very sort of like capitalistic approach to it um, as, as almost kind of like the exception to his rule about intimacy. And so at the end of this, you know, as part of reconciling that catharsis of like childbirth and uh, recognizing herself as a new person, it, it feels like, you know, there's sort of this like fatalism to Paul's ultimate uh, end in this as well, that she has to kind of, find a way to sever any sort of tie between her experience of childbirth and child rearing from the father himself. Uh, And it ends in a way that really kind of, of all of this movie, I found the most shocking that it was a a literal like kind of explosion of an ending here um, where she turns on the stove and lets the gas run. Uh, It it feels like it's, it's clear that she also kills the cat in this which I, I, I take umbrage with, but beyond that, I'm not going to villainize her for it, but she does kill the cat here as well. Yeah. I mean, he, he was an unfortunate casualty of a very necessary <laughs> murder in my mind. Yes. <laughs> uh, I was, I was, you know, not to sound like a fucking freak, but I was elated that he died, that Paul dies. Um, I think he got the ending that he deserved. He clearly was not a happy person and he took it out on other people. Um, and uh, and when she turns on that gas and you know what she's doing um, and then she goes and has the baby, like it was a harrowing moment for me watching this film. I was like, yes. Turn that gas on, get the fuck out and have your kid <laughs> like, and call Robert. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I think important about the scene, there are some details that I really enjoyed. <laughs> um, she picks up the phone after she, after she turns on the gas because Robert has arrived. So she's, you know, talking to him on the intercom and um, he's like, you know, what's going on? And she says, don't worry, you'll like it. And I took that to mean that like at once he would, he would enjoy it because he would get to sort of care for her in the way that he does in their, in their sexual encounters, but also that he would enjoy it because she would be in an incredible amount of pain. Um, so there's also the, the sort of sadist quality um, to him being an, an observer um, in this experience of her having this baby. She notably uh, is too dilated to get an epidural by the time that she gets there. Um, so she does experience the full breadth of pain that giving birth is. Um, and Robert is there watching. And there's no sort of indication that he's aroused. But I, I did like that detail of her saying, don't worry, you'll like it. Um, and that sort of getting to have multiple meanings in my mind. Yeah, and in terms of the, the the film is pretty graphic about the birth as well, which I think mm -hmm. is essential, particularly like she's very unflinching. Like when we're talking about a lot of movies about sexuality, um, a lot of the criticism tends to be you see a lot of naked women. You don't really see the other side where Bria is not on that wavelength. You see a lot of a lot of penis and you see a birth of a baby. You see you don't just see like the V of the vagina like you see the interior like the interior to a certain extent you see again you see a, a baby's head breaching and I think that that is also part of this kind of unflinching like no this is like part of being a human being this is all part of sexuality and it's dishonest to look away from those things mm -hmm. and it's not surprising to me that a movie like this is very controversial I think it invites controversy to a certain extent but I think it's very interesting that it is controversial and that these types of things are shocking and it's like why are they shocking and why do they upset people so profoundly and the film does feature violence like definitely but I don't think that when people are talking about the movie and finding it upsetting that they're often referring to those moments which I also find interesting yeah I mean you're bringing up we're talking about being on Twitter. God, you're bringing up um, <laughs> a discourse that circulates often that I find myself participating in because I have such strong feelings about it. Um, but I'm I'm truly sick of it. Um, and it is this conversation about the sex scene and sex in movies. And mm -hmm. as you noted earlier, Justine, there you know is a whole cohort of people online and presumably in real life but i would argue probably less so than online um who don't think that sex should be in movies it doesn't serve a purpose etc um it doesn't advance the plot that's always you know the thing that we hear um on the side of the argument um and it speaks to a very paul mindset for lack of a better phrase right like sort of believing that um, sex doesn't serve a purpose, that it's not fundamental to like being a human. So it certainly shouldn't be in a film um, and certainly shouldn't make me feel any type of way. That's not what art's supposed to do. Um, I'm just supposed to sit back and let it slide down my gullet. Um, and, you know, what you also bring up for me, Justine, is, uh, is 
American, America's obsession specifically with a very specific kind of violence in media um, and our patent acceptance of it, um, our desire for it, in fact, um, the sort of like the, the sort of prurient nature of our relationship with violence in media and that we see, you know, on a daily basis here in this country and that that is so distinct from our revulsion and unwillingness to engage with, let alone desire or seek out um, sexual uh, images um, or ideas in media. Um, And, you know, I I think we all sort of probably fall on the same side of this argument here, but what I will just say is I appreciate that um, Briette in this movie is um, letting the violence sort of be there, but forcing us to understand that like what's actually um, what actually dominates our life, what should dominate our life um, and our experience as a human is sex. And it exists everywhere in public spaces, private spaces, but, the doctor's office, um, it's not relegated to a corner um, or a tab on your computer. Um, and we have the opposite relationship with it. I think we are willing to accept, you know, um, other types of violence anywhere and everywhere in our lives and not so with sex and sexuality and images related to it. I mean, yeah, I completely agree. And I think it's like even we're talking what do we accept in what we see in the world? We accept a lot of violence um, mm-hmm. in North America, certainly. Um, we accept a lot of stupidity and we accept a lot of just like fr- like everything has to, like you say, talking about like that, the the worst discourse the, the, the worst twitter um and it's like it's so persistent like once a week and it is hard not to wait in because it's just so annoying uh is this kind of underlying anxiety that everything we need to be doing and everything that we engage with needs to be productive mm-hmm. and it's like the same with the way we see i mean i like i don't want to sound like too much of a hippie but it's like we're okay with advertise like it's like there's so much we're we're okay with but the second it doesn't serve a very clear purpose in advancing our capital worth then we are uncomfortable with it Mm -hmm. and i think it's definitely something that a movie like this is reckoning with even if it's not necessarily like on the surface but it clearly is very much concerned with those questions and what it means like on a very broad level like what it means to live a fulfilling life Mm. Yeah. yeah. And and the way that like living under capitalism deprives us of that, right? Of living a fulfilling life. And importantly, you know, one of the reasons we accept so much violence is because it is necessary to producing capital. That's one of the things that's fundamental to capitalism. It's incredibly violent. Um so it it's not just normalized. It's like on some level we all accept it is what makes the system work. Um, and I think it's, it's not only why we, um, why we put up with it, but often why we seek it out. Um, because 
there's some part of us that knows it's uh, it's what's keeping the ball the ball rolling, um, whereas sex does not. Yeah, and I, you know, we're talking about like this obnoxious Twitter discourse around like you know sex scenes specifically, and when we talk about it, I think kind of you know in the the metatextual sense with like relation to films, uh, it's frustrating and troubling but i think it goes even beyond that to something that's even like a little bit more insidious and i only bring it up because it's something that carly has written about extensively and talked about um and also something that we've just like kind of witnessed which is uh, i think a more internalized kind of perspective from certain people that we share spaces with online and even in real life where sexual expression specifically sexual expression from women is something that is oft criticized and seen as uh, like unnecessary or, you know, uh, crossing some sort of like implicit or boundary that's supposed to be there. And that to me, I think, is a thing that the film is also challenging here, mm-hmm. which is, you know, this kind of humanistic, uh, well, not, not that it's challenging this, but it's embracing a sort of humanistic kind of perspective on sexuality as, you know, part of part of life part you know tantamount to like existing completely and holistically and so you know it it becomes frustrating when you see a lot of you know policing language or policing behavior in these spaces particularly as it pertains to women expressing themselves sexually um that i i think that this film is really in dialogue with which is why i'm I'm glad we're talking about it frankly because it feels like it was you know kind of front and center in in conversations carly and i have been having where i think that you know Lots of people uh, would would do well to maybe check out romance and and listen to what it has to say. Yeah, God forbid I talk about it online, though. <laughs> and I think that I mean that's the thing, right? Is like ultimately that is a space for self expression in a place where people express themselves in a lot of ways that they can't in other avenues of their lives. And so to make that place uh, susceptible to the same sort of like capitalistic patriarchal kind of rules and regulations of behavior. Uh, seems counterintuitive and and really kind of contradictory to why those kind of places exist and why they flourish in the first place. When it goes back to something you said, Justine, about, um, you know, men and Paul in this film, but men more broadly being unable to see a woman as a human being once they see her as a sexual being. Um, and, you know, it's been hard, I think, for me to realize that there are some people who I know online who have that perspective. Um, you know, it's, it's their loss, frankly. Um, and I don't even mean with regards to me, I just mean like in terms of like experiencing the fullness of life, but like, it's not unique to a handful of guys online. It's, um... It's an incredibly um, pervasive uh, posture that we have toward women, um, specifically, that if you are expressing yourself in a sexual way, in a public space, even in private spaces, um, you are degrading yourself, you are no longer human, you are, uh, you're less than, whereas I would argue that for most women, it's, it's the opposite. Um, I'm actually like being more who I am. I'm being more human. 
I'm um, I'm fighting the sort of degradation that uh, existing in this world imposes upon me. Yeah, and I think too, um, part of it is that like people like Paul, for example, they see their their partners as extensions of themselves rather than mm-hmm. separate. And mm-hmm. so I think when he's worried about her degrading herself, he's really worrying about how her doing things reflects upon mm. his own worth. Mm-hmm. Um, even if that is within the happy confines of their consensually monogamous relationship, um, her desiring is still a reflection upon him in some way because he does not see her as an independent person that she just exists within his sphere. It's kind of like his car or something. Yes. Totally. <laughs> just an artifact. Another <laughs> artifact of his life. She says at one point that she feels like luggage on his bed. Mm. Um, I think you're so right about that, that he does sort of see her as, you know, just another like mm. thing that makes up the stuff that comprises his life. Not a person. What a great line though, luggage. Like oh. I completely forgot it because it's like oh. she's empty, ready to yes. be. Mm-hmm. Um, and Oh, if she's going to be filled up, it's only because he has to go somewhere and take her. I don't know. There's, it's a very like great image. Like, it death is. And metaphor. You and being, being like lugged around, right? Mm-hmm. And she even says later in the film, after he impregnates her, you know, it was the last time. It was the first time he ever made love to me. It was the last time. And from that point on, he lugged me around like a ball and chain. And it, it has that sort of the, the luggage metaphor has that same sort of evocation. A burden. I can't think of a, a person I would rather have this conversation with than you, Justine. Oh, that's um, so sweet. Because I just think you you have such a beautiful handle on conversations about about femininity and sexuality and bodies and um, and how all of that relates to systems and people. Um, and I think this film is about all of those things. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm really, really pleased that you brought it to us. I adore it. Well, I'd like to thank you because I gave other choices and I'm very happy this is the one that you chose. I don't even <laughs> remember what the other ones were, so it was, they are insignificant. Um, well, this is a great movie. A great movie from the 90s. <laughs> A great, great movie from the film. 90s and one that I am absolutely going to watch again and again. And I'm not, I too am not a person that like, especially in my adult life when I have limited time um, that, you know, rewatches things over and over again. But I absolutely will with this one. It's, um, it's marvelous. Yeah, it's a really rewarding watch. And by virtue of sharing a space with Carly, I will also be rewatching on many <laughs> occasions here. Um, I'm also really thankful, Justine, for for you bringing this one to us and, and that you were game to talk about this one. Uh, we still have your short list. So uh, please come back and join us uh, anytime to talk about any one of those films or, or any other one that uh, strikes your fancy. Yeah, I definitely love to. Uh, Justine, for our listeners, where can they find you and your work around the Internet? Uh, the easiest place to find me is on Twitter at Red Room Rantings. And I'm also, I think, the same on Instagram. I normally write for more or less the same places, but I share everything there. So it's easier just to find my work through social media. Awesome. From our end of things, you can follow along with the show at Hit Factory Pod. 
Uh, we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash hitfactorypod, where we do bi-weekly bonus episodes for the full Hit Factory experience for just $5 a month. Uh, we'll give a shout out to our overlords. Their names are Linda, Jesse K, Jared Murray, Omar. Thank you all for your continued support. And we will catch you all the next time. See ya. See ya.